So when I was 17 years old, I put my mom's Buick into the Muskingum River. And uh, I remember, you know, when you're 17, your brain hasn't quite developed the notion yet that life is fragile. Do you remember those days when you just thought you were invincible? And as the water's rushing in and the driver's side door will not open up, I remember having the thought, I think I could die here. And but for the Madison Township Fire Department and squad, which got me out of the river because somebody that I've never met called the squad, um, I would not be here today. But what that did for me is it gave me this urgency to life that has never left me. Sherry will tell you, I'm either asleep or I'm moving. Uh, the one thing for all my flaws, I, I will just grab the gusto in every day. Oh. Or while I'm watching football. That's the third thing. I'm watching football. And, and so this summer, I'll, I'll just confess to something. The early this summer when I was in the midst of something that very few people knew about, and that was some severe health uncertainties, I thought, you know what? I'm going to study 2 Timothy. I'm going to study that all over. I'm gonna, I've, I've, I've taught through it. I've studied it. But I'm going to study it again. Because I want to go back and hear Paul's words when life's urgency became very eminent to him as he's in a prison cell in Rome. And it's very clear his life is about to end. And at the risk of melodrama, I thought, I'm going to study that all over again. And from that emerged this series that we have been in which are the last words of the Apostle Paul, the most influential man in the Western world who was a follower of Jesus, the most influential leader in history, not named Jesus, was the great apostle Paul. And these are his final words before he would be beheaded at the, at the authority of the Caesar, at the authority of Rome for his claim that Jesus Christ was Lord, not Caesar. And so today we look at these final words and I'm going to walk through them. I could spend hours in each section, but we're going to put this whole all these brush strokes of his final words together because there is an urgent message about urgency in this text. Last week we ended at verse 8. Today we pick up at verse 9. Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. Timothy was his protege now leading the church in Ephesus. And we already know that a lot of people have deserted Paul in prison. He includes in that list Demas. Because he loved this world, has deserted me, and has gone to Thessalonica. We don't know why, but Demas bailed on Paul because maybe it was just too hard. Maybe it was just too hard. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. This, this was probably because of some missionary movement. Only Luke, the physician, who would be the the writer of the Gospel of Luke and, the, and the, the fifth book in the New Testament, the record of the Acts of the Apostles. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I get choked up with that one because Mark was a young minister in training that went with Paul on his first missionary journey but bailed on him. And when the second missionary journey started, his cousin Barnabas was with Paul as Paul's co-laborer, 
And Paul and Barnabas had a severe disagreement and division over whether John Mark was dependable or not. Paul said, he's not. I couldn't depend on him in the first trip. We can't depend on him now. Barnabas said, give him another chance. And Paul said, no. You see embedded in those words, the greatest victory in the kingdom of God is reconciliation. The great, don't, don't, don't let, there's no second place, there's no third place. When people who were once divided come back together, that's the greatest win. That's what Christianity has to offer that no one in any other religious system has to offer is grace. Grace. And these are just like, you know, I know, I know these are the words that you just like when you're doing your Bible reading, you just read through real fast because there's not really, well, why is this in here? Like the genealogies. What's this in here for? There's so much meaning. I sent, sent Tychicus to Ephesus, so you're getting help, Timothy. And when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Paul is probably very cold in this damp, dark prison cell. And the cloak would have been almost a tent-like garment that had a hole in it. And it would keep him warm. And bring my books, my scrolls, especially the parchments. This, this would have included the Hebrew scriptures. It would have probably included some of Paul's writings himself that would become the New Testament scriptures. Now, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord would pay him for what he has done. That, that's code for, I'm mad at that guy. I'm mad at that guy. And you too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. So this was most likely someone who was posing as a Christian, but probably more of a Judaizer, a legalistic Christian. Like I say, I... I've never been hurt by an atheist, but I've been hurt by a lot of Baptists, man. And so if you ask me who my, you know, Alexander the metal worker is, it's not any atheist. Paul had his. He was probably Baptist. Anyhow, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. You know what he's doing here? He's quoting Psalm 22, which is the same Psalm that Jesus was, was focusing on on the cross. There's just right through this, you can just see Psalm 22. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Look at this. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. Now, what's really fascinating here is because in that culture, the male was always mentioned first. And right there, you see how Christianity was turning, up, turning upside down the social order. It was elevating women. This is one of the biggest misnomers of our faith because there are some systems that still look at women as lower. And, and I, it's not because of culture. It's because of our understanding of Scripture we understand why Priscilla is put first here. It's because she was leading the way. If you want to look into this uh, more deeply, um, the movie, The Apostle of Christ, which is about Paul, watch it this week because you see Priscilla and Aquila in action. It's such, a, it's, you'll cry at the end. You know, I know I, I cry at car commercials. You know, I know that. But you'll cry at the end of that movie when Paul goes to heaven and Priscilla and Aquila have played such a role. And the household of Anesiphorus, he's already talked about him in chapter one. Erastus stayed in Corinth. I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. He didn't heal everyone. 
Healing is not just about have enough faith and you'll be healed. It's much more complicated than that. Come, do your best to come before winter. Look at that phrase. Come before winter. And right there, it's loaded with the eminence of Paul's transition to heaven. Eubulius greets you, and so do Putin's Linus, Claudia, which are very likely some Roman official, governmental officials. Uh, we see historically, and especially with Claudia, she was most likely a British princess. There's a lot of evidence for that, who had come to Rome. And the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. So this summer, you know, I'll never forget the day when, when I come into my doctor's office and the physician's assistant says, uh, Dr. Paul has been trying to get a hold of you all day because he knew this would rock you. Your EKG shows you've had a heart attack. And I've told the story now to the church, but this came as a result of that. And so I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to really make sure I don't make this some big melodrama because, you, you know, preachers, we've never met a story we couldn't manipulate for our own good, you know. <laughs> you never, we've never known one like that. But yet, yet this urgency that I've lived my, my life with, that, 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 you know, that I learned at 17, oh, my gosh, the meaning of life is partly because it ends. <laughs> That's part of the meaning of life is, is any day now. Um, something could happen. And then I think about how, how do you then take, you're in prison, you've lived with this urgency, your whole life was to be a calling of movement going throughout the world, spreading the gospel, and now you're in prison. It seems like it's all stopped, but it hasn't. And what this last section teaches us is really, 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 every single person here, when adversity hits your front door, there are four ways you can respond to adversity. One is irrationally. Irrationally. Just catastrophize everything that happens to you. This is terrible. This is the end of the world. When Elijah the prophet went through some extreme adversity, um, the king and the queen, King, king uh, Jez queen Jezebel and King Ahab were after him. He goes off by himself and he says, God, take my life. I'm no better than my forefathers. I want you to take my life right now. And God literally says to him, he goes, Elijah, what are you doing here? Like, it's really neat in first case. What are you doing here? Stop catastrophizing. I've got 700 people who have now bowed down to Baal. Stop it. Just stop it. But we can respond irrationally, right? And, and we make things worse and more permanent, pervasive, and personal than they really are. Another way is resentfully. Just get bitter. When Job went through what he went through, remember, does anybody remember what his wife said? Job, this is terrible. Just curse God and let's die. Just curse God. And the lesson there is watch your wife. When you go through bad stuff, watch your wife. Okay, be careful. But, but the whole point of that is, is, is just, just, just get bitter. Just curse God. And she did. She got bitter. And some people just get bitter. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay, doesn't it? And some people, people, adversity will grow you. No, it won't. Some people, adversity makes their life, makes them worse. Warren Wiersbe once said that, that realism is idealism that has gone through the fire and gotten purified. But cynicism is idealism that has gone through the fire and gotten burned. And whether you get burned or whether you get purified is not the intensity of the heat, but the malleability of your soul. 
Do, do, you, do you respond resentfully? Another way you can respond is stoically. It's God's will. Everything's God's will. Everything's God's will. Well, no, it's not. God allows everything, but he doesn't mean for everything to happen. It's called his allowable sovereign will. Not everything is God's will. Some things are man's will, and we, in God's sovereignty, he allows that to happen, but that's not his will. And, but some people, their way to deal with life is just stay high, stay drunk, and turn off. Just turn off. Don't think, don't feel. Just go through life stoically. And yet Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. I want you to have my joy, that, that, that my joy may be your joy. I mean, he had no intent that we should live our lives stoically. So when adversity hits, you, you can. When you're in jail and you don't want to be there, when whatever happens, happens, you can respond irrationally, resentfully, stoically, or number four, you can respond creatively. And this is, this is what Paul did. Paul responded creatively to prison by saying this. Look, look what he said. Look what he said. He said, he said, the things that have happened to me, he says to, to the Philippian church, he says, the things that have happened to me have really served to advance the gospel. And literally that was true. Literally that was true. That while Paul was in prison, the gospel was advancing because of the very letters that he was writing while in prison. Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary, once said, wherever you are, be all there. Be where your feet are. Live to the fullest every day, every moment you know to be the will of God. And that is great teaching that Paul lived. He bloomed where he was planted. He didn't just sulk in prison and say, this is terrible, I'm bitter, or I'm just going to shut down. No, he responded creatively. Remember the psalm, Psalm 118 says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And that doesn't mean everything's rosy and everything's perfect, but it does mean, it does mean that maturing followers of the sovereign Christ know that, that he never wastes a crisis. It's a matter of do you, do you, that's why, look at these words again. We saw these in the, the second week. Remember, Timothy, and this is embedded all throughout this, this letter. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from the dead. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being like a criminal, chained like a criminal. Remember, remember, suffering is inevitable. Purpose is optional. So you're going to suffer for something. I suffered yesterday between noon and 3.30. I suffered did anybody else suffer? I was exhausted. I played that game yesterday. I was, I, I know, I, I, I was exhausted. You're going to suffer for something. Is it, is it going to be something that's temporary? Is it something that doesn't matter? Or is it, or, or purpose is, in, is optional? Eternity is optional for you. Paul said, I'm suffering, but I'm chained for Christ. And look at this, look at this. But God's word's not chained. That's the creative use of circumstances. That's the creative use of circumstances. And here's the sermon in a sentence today. When adversity comes, look for the opportunities, not the obstacles. This is so hard to do. But when you get a diagnosis, do you say, God, how can you use this through me? When you get a circumstance that you didn't ask for, Paul didn't ask to be put in prison. That would never would have been his plan, but it was clearly, he even uses the intentional phrasing, I am, a, I am a criminal because of Christ, not 
in spite of Christ because of Christ. When that happens, do you look for the opportunities in that, not the obstacles? And I know if today you're sitting there and you said, I came to church because I'm struggling so much. I don't want to hear this. I want to hear comfort. Friends, this is comfort. Because this is what allows every day we live, good or bad, to have unbelievable, unbelievable meaning. Paul said to the Ephesian church that Timothy pastored, be very careful how you live. Uh, not as unwise, but as mine. Make the most of every opportunity. Because why? Because the days are evil. Like there's an urgency to life. And that, that's why today's subject matter is so, so, so practical because everybody here, everybody here has commitments. One of the things many of us are aware of, unaware of is what's called commitment creep. It's like crabgrass. It just, where did that come from? Where did that come from? You ever notice that about commitments? They just creep up and you don't say no. Now you have dramatic commitments and you have unspoken commitments. Dramatic commitments are like buying a house. Is there a cost to buying a house aside from a mortgage? There is, because you might buy a house and all you see is the square footage. What you don't see is the hour commute, because all you see is the square footage. And so a lot of our lives are defined by our dramatic commitments. What most of us don't realize is that a lot of our life is consumed by unspoken commitments. So an unspoken commitment, for example, would be how much you scroll through social media, how much TV you watch. You're not sitting down saying, I have a goal of 10 hours of television this week. I'm making a commitment. But before you know it, you've spent 10 hours that week when you could have been writing the letters that you know you need to write. You spent 10 hours that week watching television. Now, if it's football, again, I want to say it's different. It's different if it's football. I'm trying to tell my wife this, you know. It's different. But look at, look at this. Look at these words. Timothy has an opportunity to serve as mentor, and he must capitalize quickly or it'll be too late. Timothy, come before winter. Because by that time, I might not be here. I know, I always look at that and I think, this, this is a grandmother laying guilt on her children. <laughs> Grandchildren. I'm not going to be here very long, honey. You got to come to Kansas from California for Christmas because we're just not going to be around very long. I know it sounds that way, but I'm sorry. But there's just such an urgency to this, isn't there? There's such an urgency. Timothy, the weather may be that you won't get here or it's, I won't be here. I won't be here. I was a junior in college when, when one of the gentlemen, my, one of my professors who spoke at my ordination it was one of two sermons that I heard in chapel in college that redirected my life. And Dr. Stephen Hooks preached a message called Come Before Winter from this text. I still remember. As a matter of fact, I owe a lot of this sermon to that sermon right there. But I just remember it so much and just, oh my gosh, that's right. There are things that you're going to say yes to and you don't see the cost of time. Because you say this is what matters, but because of commitment creep, these things start mattering more. And you look back on your life and you go, oh my gosh, I put off so many things that I never, never, never really got to. I remember Dr. Hooks, he had a, he had a, a, a piece that he said, that, where he said that, that he was going to be all a person could be tomorrow. None would be kinder or braver than he tomorrow. 
A friend who was troubled and weary, he knew he'd be glad for a lift and he, when he needed it too. On him he could call and do what he could do tomorrow. Each morning he thought of the letters he'd write tomorrow. He thought of the folks he'd fill with delight tomorrow. But as each day swept by and by, he didn't have time to stop on his way. Tomorrow I'll see others, he'd say, tomorrow. A, 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 the greatest of workers this man would be tomorrow. A blessing to all and a friend to all men tomorrow. But the fact is he died and faded from view and all that was left here when living was through was the mountain of things he intended to do tomorrow. And what I'm saying is, don't walk out here today saying, I'm so guilty, I haven't written those letters. I'm going to go home and pour out my soul. There are going to be tears on those letters. What I'm saying is, when you wake up someday, and you are always going to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, and you wake up and you realize your life is over, and it's stacked up with a bunch of things you intend to do tomorrow. And Paul looks at Timothy and says, Timothy, winter's coming. Winter's coming, you better know what is really important today. What matters most today? Psychologists say of the two regrets, commission, I wish I hadn't done that, and omission, I wish I had that, done that and didn't. Which do you think, overwhelmingly, the evidence shows is more damaging to people? Acts of commission or omission? It's omission. Because commission is often, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. I, I hate that I did that. I have regrets. But omission is, oh my gosh, I missed that opportunity. Because either I was so focused on the obstacles or I was so focused on what was coming up that I didn't see right now, right in front of me. How many of you are like me? I have three big regrets in my life. I didn't buy Apple stock in 1980. I didn't buy Microsoft stock in 1986. And I picked up tennis at 47, not seven. That's what I, I have three. If you have more regrets than that, I feel sorry for you because those are my only three regrets I have in life right there. That's it. <laughs> right. But we all have those things where we go, oh. You know, you know how Jesus described eternity for some people? Gnashing of teeth. Remember he said that? You know what gnashing of teeth is? It's this. Ooh, ooh, I forgot to record the game. Ooh. It is those things that you knew you should have done, but you didn't do. And he said, those who said, no, God, I'll, I'll get with you tomorrow. I'll get with you tomorrow. Ooh. There's going to be gnashing of teeth. And it's this, this idea that, that what you'll really regret in life are not your mistakes as much as that may have driven you to God. What you'll really look back on when you have the lens of eternity to look backwards through is, oh, I missed it. I missed it. So Patrick Morley is a man who wrote a best-selling book called The Man in the Mirror. And he did interviews with people, and he said, overwhelmingly, the four regrets in life are these four. When he interviewed people who were chronologically advanced and they were looking back on life, they all said overwhelmingly, I would have loved more deeply. I would have laughed more often. I would have given more generously. And I would have lived more boldly if I had my life to live over again. That's a picture-taking screen right there. That's, take your picture of that. Because if you're still here, it's not too late. 
You can commiserate in, oh my gosh, now I'm this aged 32-year-old and my life has passed before my eyes. And you know, or you can say, okay, today, I have today. So I'm gonna hold these up on the screen and I just, I wanna walk through those uh, with the remainder of our time. I wanna walk through those. I would have loved more deeply. Morley said that at the top of the list of regrets was, I was so busy trying to improve my family's standard of living that before I knew it, my children were grown and gone and I never got to know them. Now they're too busy for me. And this is the cats in the cradle, isn't it? I was so try busy trying to make a life that I missed life, I missed love. So today is the day that if you need to say, honey, I love you. Honey, I'm present now. Could we just sit and have a cup of coffee? I would have loved more deeply. He said, what is lasting is seldom urgent. Have you noticed that? What's most important is seldom urgent. Malcolm Muggridge said, when I look back on my life, what strikes me most forcibly about it is that what seemed at the time most significant and seductive seems now most futile and absurd. For instance, success in all of its various guises, being known and being praised, ostensible pleasures like acquiring money or attracting women. In retrospect, all these exercises and self-gratification seem pure fantasy, what the philosopher Pascal called licking the earth. <laughs> Isn't that a great image? Well, it's not a great image. It's a very picturesque image. Licking the earth. I would have laughed more often. The word gospel means good news. I love that bumper sticker from years ago. If you've got the love of Jesus in your heart, notify your face. <laughs> notify your face. I mean, this is so true. I, I would have laughed more often. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. I, I was, you know, we, we talk around here about significant events, and sometimes there's significant events, so there's little things that sneak up on you. But I remember the day when Jordan's teacher, uh, when she was five or six in Southbrook Kids, when her teacher told me, when we asked today, this Sunday of Father's Day, what you most loved about your, to see your dad do, and she answered, I love to see my daddy laugh. I remember that. Oh, my gosh. And so, you know, what people, uh, for me, don't realize what I love, my family does. This is going to sound funny to you, but what, what, what people don't realize, what I love most about Jaws is Steven Spielberg considered it a comedy. And it is. It is full of such humor. When the tiger shark is hanging from the lift and they say, what kind? What kind of shark is it? And, and Hooper goes, a tiger shark. And the guy goes, oh, what? My family has laughed so many times on that scene right there. It is a comedy. Oh, what? There's a shirt with that guy. It says, oh, what? My grandson, Gunnar, and I, we, he, 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 we love dad jokes. I think I love him. I think, I think he's faking it. But anyhow, uh, we love dad jokes. And so I, 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 I keep this running dad joke thing going with him. I say, hey, Gunnar, did you know scientists discovered a fossilized dinosaur fart? Did you know that? Really? Yeah. You know what they're calling it? A blast from the past. <laughs> and, oh, great you know. But I'm, I, this is the one thing I don't regret is silliness. I don't regret silliness because 
life's pretty serious. If you notice around here, if you're around here long enough, you know we're trying not to take ourselves so seriously because most churches don't die because they weren't serious enough. Most churches die because they're too serious about themselves. Lighten up, Francis. Okay, lighten up. Frederick Buechner said this so good. A good joke is one that catches you by surprise, like God's, for instance. Who would have guessed that Israel, which the very name Hebrew means homeless person, of all nations would be the one God picked for his Messiah. Or that Sarah would have Isaac at the age of 90. Think about that. Think of the humor in that, that she pays her first maternity bill with her social security check. Okay, now that's funny. That is funny. Or the Messiah would turn up in a manger. A manger. Who could possibly see the duck-billed platypus coming? Or the character occupying the pulpit at First Presbyterian down the street or the stage at Southbrook. When God really gets going, even the morning stars burst and all the sons and daughters of God shout for joy. Isn't that good? I would have laughed more often. I would have given more generously, they said. Ask yourself, if I were to know that I was about to die, would I have any regrets about how much stuff I have relative to how much I've given for Christ? Would I? Now think about that. Whoa. How much stuff I have relative to how much I have given in the name of Christ. Only what's, you know, one more life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What matters is eternity. There's a book by a guy named Thomas Lynch. He's a mortician and a poet. Now that's a combination I want. I want to be a, in another life, a mortician and a poet. And he wrote a book called uh, The Undertaking, Life Studies from the Dismal Trade. And he tells about how often people would instruct him about what type of casket they want, what kind of funerals they want. And he said, my response was always the same. The dead don't care. Like, you're, you're, you're really not going to care a lot at that point. But he said one time, there was a guy who lived a very lavish, very religious, but very lavish, ostentatious, rich lifestyle, but he wanted to be buried in a humble pine box. And Lynch said, I tried to tell him that what would really be better would be for him to actually live a more humble life because he actually gave so much of his wealth away while he was alive. And then he said, quote, when the sad duty called your name, bury him for free in the manner to which he would by then have become accustomed. This suggestion was not met with enthusiasm. What I was trying to tell a fellow was, of course, that being a dead saint is no more worthwhile than being a dead angelfish. Living is the run and always has been. This is the central fact of my business. There is nothing, once you are dead, that can be done to you or with you that will do you any good or harm because the dead don't care. I would have given more generously. The time to start giving generously is not tomorrow. It's today. Today. I would have loved, lived more boldly and I think, you know, these times have such a, an urgency about them. The days are evil. And I'm thankful that whatever happened to me when I was 17, it gave me an urgency to life. 
that of all the things that I don't like about myself, the one thing I do like is this urgency because it's reality. So I thought about this last five weeks. We've been walking through this letter together, the final words of the great apostle. And I thought back to the first words we read five weeks ago. 2 Timothy 1.8. Timothy, do not be ashamed to witness about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And if I could close out this series with one thing, I think what I would emphasize most is for those of you who have Jesus Christ living in you, share it. You know that we have reinvigorated our, what our church was built on, the power of one. Leave the 99 and find the one lost sheep. Who's that one person in your life who needs what Christ has to offer? As Paul Tillich once said, he said, there are three things that the gospel of Christ offers that no amount of money, no amount of education, no amount of success can ever solve these these, three problems. There is the problem of sin. There is the problem of meaninglessness to life. And there's the problem of eternity. This guilt, this emptiness, And this fear that no amount of money can solve those problems. And yet in Christ, he says, I am the way to a life that is free from all that. And many people said, I would live my life more boldly. I would live knowing that pain and suffering are are inevitable. But purpose, living with intent, living with a readiness to say, my friend, Can I talk to you about what has given me a new life? Oh, that purpose is optional. Arthur C. Brooks wrote a best-selling book called Strength to Strength, Happiness in the Second Half of Life. And he opens the book with a chapter titled, The Man on the Plane Who Changed My Life. It's not true that no one needs you anymore. These exasperated words came from an elderly woman sitting behind me on a late-night flight from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. The plane was dark and quiet, and most people were either sleeping or watching a movie. I was working on my laptop, feverishly trying to finish something, now completely lost to memory, but at that time seemed to be of crucial importance to my life, happiness, and future. A man I assumed to be her husband murmured almost inaudibly in response. Again, his wife said, oh, stop saying it would be better if you were dead. Now they had my full attention. I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but I couldn't help it. I listened half with human empathy and half with the professional fascination of a social scientist, which I am. I formed an image of the husband in my head. I imagined someone who had worked hard all his life in relative obscurity. Someone disappointed at his dreams unfulfilled. Perhaps the career he never pursued, the schools he never attended, the company he never started. Now I imagine he was forced to retire, tossed aside like yesterday's news. As the lights switched on after touchdown, I finally got a look at this desolate man, and I was shocked. I recognized him. 
He was not well known. He was famous. Then in his mid-80s, he had been universally beloved as a hero for his courage, patriotism, and accomplishments of many decades ago. I have admired him since I was young. As he passed up the aisle of the plane behind me, passengers recognized him and murmured with veneration. Standing at the door of the cockpit, the pilot recognized him and said, echoing my own thoughts, sir, I admired you since I was a little boy. The older man, apparently wishing for death, just a few minutes earlier, beamed at the recognition of his past glories. I wondered which more accurately describes the man, the one filled with joy and pride right now, or the one 20 minutes ago telling his wife he might as well be dead. I'm here to tell you, there is another way to live. It's winter is coming, suffering is inevitable, but purpose is optional. And every day you can wake up saying, Lord, how will you use what I'm going through today? For your purposes. How will you take this prison I'm in and use it for your glory, not mine? How will you use me today, not for the 99 who are already in the flock, but for that one lost sheep who's outside the flock if I would have life to live it again, I would live more boldly. I would see the opportunities in everything that happens to me, not the obstacles of, oh, I'm in my mid-80s now, life is over. Well, if you're not dead, it's not over yet. Today, this is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day that the Lord has made. Live to the fullest every moment you know to be in the will of God. Amen. What I want you to do right now is I want you to take time to pause. He was going to be all, the, all a person could be tomorrow, but he never took the time to stop and say. And sometimes I think one of the most powerful things we do in our gatherings together is those of you who take time to stop, to pause. And process this content from eternity backwards. That these symbols of Christ's body and blood represent no more guilt, full meaning and purpose, and your future is secure. Death has been eliminated. And now live to the fullest. Every moment you know to be in the will of God. Amen. Father, now, we don't know what will happen tomorrow. Jesus, you said, live today, because tomorrow, each day has enough cares of its own. Tomorrow will come tomorrow. Use what is there today. Leverage what is there today in every adversity. Don't see the obstacles. See, look for the opportunities. And I pray that today we disperse from here a flock of your agents saying to a world lost in purposeless activity, 
a world that is in, entrenched in commitment creep for things that don't matter. Father, we live in a world where a five-year-old soccer team has the commitment of a cult, for crying out loud. It's insane what we're doing. But we see it backwards. We see what really matters is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's what matters. We see the cleansing of sin, the meaning to life, and the hope in death that Christ brings. And we thank you. We thank you. Today, if there's someone here who has heard your voice, may they not turn away. May they turn towards you and say, Jesus Christ, I surrender my life to you today. Use me. Use me. Use the events of my life when I'm standing for kings and when I'm alone in a cell for your purposes. Come before winter. In Jesus we pray and everyone said, Amen. I'll see you next week.